0: This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? I'm Greg Dalton, and today on Climate One, we're looking at the risks and opportunities of energy stocks. Severe weather, partially driven by burning fossil fuels, has chilled the profits of companies including FedEx, General Motors, Intel, McDonald's, and Toyota. Those companies have bounced back since their earnings took a hit from the 2011 floods in Thailand and the polar vortex of 2014. But a small and growing clique of investors is saying that climate disruption is hitting the overall economy and could punch fossil fuel companies in the face. If countries get serious about fighting climate change, oil and coal firms could see a decline in their revenues and share prices. That would hurt essentially every American with stocks in their retirement account. The governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, says that possibilities should be studied, and some oil companies agree. Over the next hour, we'll discuss investing during a time of economic transition. Joining our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, we're pleased to have with us three professional investors. Kurt Billick is Chief Investment Officer of Bocage Capital, a hedge fund based in San Francisco, and Anthony Hobley is CEO of Carbon Tracker Initiative, a London-based think tank, and Simpson is Senior Portfolio Manager at CalPERS, California's $300 billion pension fund giant. Please welcome them to Climate One. Thank you. Kurt Boyleck, are you bullish on fossil fuels? Uh, No, I'm not particularly bullish on fossil fuels at the moment. Are you uh, short, which is are you betting that they're going to go down? Uh, I would say
1: that we have a very negative view on coal, um, both inside the U.S. and outside the U.S., and they're really two separate markets. Um, I would think that we are closer to the bottom uh, in oil and gas, but I don't see that they're going to come rebounding back particularly fast.
0: Uh, Anthony Hadley, we've seen a reordering of the global energy system where consumers have become suppliers, thinking about uh, the United States being the new Saudi Arabia of oil, Uh, suppliers are becoming consumers, oil demand is growing in the Middle East, et cetera. So how is the global energy world being changed right now in a a macro sense?
2: Well, in a macro sense, I think fossil fuels are getting more expensive. I mean, we've, we've crunched the numbers, we've looked at the data, And one of the things that I think has really jumped out at us is the cost, what what people call the capex cost of finding, developing and delivering, particularly oil, but I think this applies to the other fossil fuels, is going up at an incredible rate. So the last time the oil price was at the level it is now, 08, 09, the average cost per barrel of oil was half what it is now. And we just see that trend going up. So fossil fuels are going to become more expensive at the same time as we're seeing renewables, things like wind and solar are becoming cheaper. So and we call this the climate swerve, and we know which side we want to be on.
0: And Ann Simpson, uh, a lot of people look to CalPERS to be at the cutting edge of investment trends. What is CalPERS doing on fossil fuels? going to hold on a little longer and get out before the crash comes?
3: Ah, um, I don't think that's realistic. Our view is that we need two things. First of all, we need carbon uh, to be given a price. At the moment, fossil fuel companies get a free ride. They can dump their emissions into the atmosphere, that can cause environmental impact or ultimately have financial impact. So we need governments to step up and put a price so that the market works properly. That's one thing. We have a, um, a distortion in market pricing because we don't have a price on carbon. And the second thing that we're doing um, with a very large group of other investors is challenging the energy companies on their basic strategy you know, CalPERS has that $300 billion in trust for uh, the next, well, the best part of 100 years. We need to still be paying pensions. And if you look ahead, with that time horizon in mind, you need to be thinking about sustainability. So for these companies still to be in business, they need to be able to address these new risks like climate change and understand where the opportunities lie. Because just crashing through this in the hope it will all work out is simply not viable.
0: And what are you doing to pressure oil companies to be more responsive to your time horizons? Because the CEO of any large American company, they're going to be in there for three or five years. They're incented to juice the stock as much as possible during that time, and then they'll be gone. Uh, Their time horizon and interests are very different than yours.
3: Yeah. Well, they should be agents of the owners. I mean, we have a time horizon, as I said, of uh, almost a century. I mean, if you shut the door tomorrow morning at CalPERS, we'd still have to be paying pensions for about 75 years. So for a manager, needs to think of themselves as a steward of assets, not somebody there uh, to fix performance targets, to fit in with their own compensation plan. That's, that's a real issue. But the, the, simple, uh, the simple fact here is that uh, companies are owned by pension funds, Um, and people with 401ks and mutual funds. And if we think like owners, we turn to these boards and say, well, your boards of directors are there to act on our behalf. Mm. And that means you need to tackle these risks and make sure that your strategy is um, not, I suppose, in this swerve, but you have to understand how to navigate these complex and profound changes in the energy market. Mm. You can't just shut your eyes cling tight and hope for the best. And so we're really focusing on the theme of board accountability, that we need people in boardrooms who get this, who can think long term, um, and who can understand complex challenges. Can we actually pick
2: up on one point you said though, you, you mentioned that they're incentivized to achieve the best stock. Actually what we found out when we've looked at some of these remuneration plans is one of the key factors is that they're actually incentivized to replace reserves and resources. And this is one of the key drivers in these companies, regardless mm. of what that does yeah. to the share value or the dividend. So when we did our oil analysis last May, incidentally when the price was $115, $120 a barrel, we produced a cost curve for all of the oil projects in the world. And we found a huge chunk of projects that were going ahead above $90, $95, up to $200 a barrel, i.e. you needed a price from 90 to $200 for these projects to ever make money. Now one thing our analysts said back in May was... Based on all the demand fundamentals, we think the oil oil price at the moment is too high. Um, And secondly, we cannot understand how these companies, how the shareholders of these companies are allowing them to put billions into these high cost projects, um, also high carbon projects, because by doing so, they're destroying shareholder value.
0: It, so, Kurt uh, Billick, yeah, I want to pick, get you in here because hedge funds are often thought of being very short term minded, in and out quickly. Uh, well,
1: you know, I think, I think that there, there are 5,000 hedge funds approximately in the world. And so, you know, to use any one description to encompass a universe of 5,000, I think some hedge funds are very long term thinking. I think, think some hedge funds are thinking about uh, what's going to happen Do in the have next an example 24 hours. Of a
3: long term hedge fund?
1: Sure, Bout Post.
3: <laughs> but how long is long?
1: Years. Decades? Years. Not decades. Well no, that's not long yeah.
3: term then. <laughs> I, so
1: you know, <laughs> um, you know just in that I just pulled that name and I probably could have pulled a few others. But um, I think, but, you know, and, and I think there's some, some dangers in, in thinking too long term, but that's, a, that's another another conversation. I think historically the oil industry has done a, uh, a pretty terrible job of allocating capital. And I think that actually one of the things that they're most incentivized for is for growth and is to demonstrate growth in production. And I think that it's, it's really interesting that, like, we also thought that the price of oil was overvalued. Uh, for actually most of the last three years, we thought the price of oil has been above above where it should be. But we came at it from a supply angle, which is that when the price of oil was up at 100 to $120, you were creating a price umbrella in which mm. this new technology was allowing... Uh, very rapid growth in production from new from new resources. It wasn't really a demand uh, a demand phenomenon. It was we think that crushed the price of oil. We think it was much more a supply based phenomenon. And the big oil companies were allocating pro- to projects that are sort of in the hundred to one hundred and twenty dollar or higher range uh, because they actually lacked. We think the uh, nimbleness and the um, uh, flexibility of mind, uh, in order to go after the the new opportunity that was emerging. We actually don't believe that the big oil companies can effectively function in the shale oil in the shale oil
0: uh, resources, which is what undercut the projects that they're developing. Let's hear a clip from John Hofmeister, former president of shale Oil. Here's what he had to say about the future of oil companies.
1: The oil industry will stop growing. In other words, the two and a half billion that are coming into the middle class will soak up a lot of what would otherwise be excess capacity, which would be shut down.
0: So, Kurt Billick, there's the former president of an oil company saying oil industries will stop growing. A lot of times, they point to well, there might be declining demand in industrialized democracies, but this growing hunger for energy in China and <laughs> India will propel the industry forward. I'd like to have your comment to that. Uh, I think that there 's truth to both statements.
1: I think that over that as economies mature, they become more energy efficient and there, and there is a pretty and there 's pretty strong evidence if you look over the last forty years oecd uh, demand for oil has actually been in a declining trend for 40 years, going back to the late 70s. And it's true that as new economies start climbing that industrialization curve, they started demanding more oil. But the technology and the innovation that allowed for the energy innovation in the OECD over the last 40 years, the energy efficiency in the OECD, is, is out there. And so I think will get transferred much more quickly to these emergent economies. Um, you know, our view is, is that at least in, in the foreseeable future, the demand for oil is going to grow about 1% a year, which isn't a particularly fast growth rate. It's certainly far below trend GDP growth uh, in the world.
0: And Simpson, I'd like to have you on will oil industries uh, companies grow? Will they adapt? Can they, be, or will they become dinosaurs like Kodak and some other companies that didn't transition when technology or the world changed? Yeah,
3: isn't it interesting how oil executives see the light once they've... Uh Retired. Uh, John Brown, former CEO of BP, is also speaking great wisdom Mm. on the virtues of addressing climate change. Um,
0: It's just like generals who retired during the Cold War and said, all those nuclear weapons that I spent my career building, we ought to take them down now that I'm no longer in the military.
3: Yeah, so I I think this idea that um, you can think of a company as there just to do one thing is very. Unhelpful. I mean, a company is a, an arti- is a creature of mm. statute, it, not a creature of nature. This invention is I there to I thought they were individuals. Enable... I
0: thought companies were individuals. No,
3: well, this is a, a point on political donations that we're not going to discuss today about whether they have <laughs> rights of political voice. But the whole purpose of the corporate form is to allow um, the aggregation of capital, financial mm. capital... It's also to allow a continuation of activity um, beyond the lifespan of the founders. It's also to allow for a transfer of ownership and limited liability. So this vehicle has been designed to do things. You know, Mm. ultimately, will be economically successful to the extent it can meet demand or human needs and wants. So, as um, the shift in energy supply and needs unfolds over the next. Um, few years, and we're seeing it happening already, these companies need to adapt. So the question is, um, who's on the boards of these companies? What sort of reporting um, are we requiring them to make? As Anthony said, what, what are we incentivizing them to do? Mm. We pay them to jump out the window and scream hello. They might do that too. But the point about incentives is we must get them aligned over the long term with um, the needs of the corporation, not the you know, ambition of the individual manager. So there's a pay issue. But the mm. reporting piece is really very important. Um, how companies' uh, financial performance is made up of all of that activity is a really complex process, as you know, otherwise Anthony's mm. think tank wouldn't have been invented to help us navigate all of that. But we don't, at the moment, have financial reporting which captures these risks and these issues. So I think climate change is making... Uh, the big investors in the big investor community rethink the notion of who's on boards, but it's mm. also making us rethink what sort of financial reporting are we getting and what's being missed. A- We've got th- risks that aren't being uh, no, and disclosed final... and then they're not being managed.
2: This report, this point about financial reporting is critical. Um, we worked with um, a number of other groups, Ceres um, and CDP, who work with it, sort of investors um, on the climate change issue to develop uh, a letter that shareholders put to 40 oil, gas and coal companies asking them how are they were going to deal Sunlight with climate change. as well, as exactly. an example, yes. Exactly, yeah. um, and there's two very famous letters, and I'd encourage you know, viewers and listeners and, and those here to read the letters from Shell and Exxon and then read the carbon tracker responses. Now, the key thing about, I think, these responses from the oil and gas companies, and they all do it, is they pick the most optimistic demand scenarios. And and it's the International Energy Agency based in Paris, IEA, that produces these scenarios, but they produce a range of scenarios. And what you find is the oil and gas companies always pick the most optimistic ones. And they mention in a byline the sort of the less optimistic ones, which look at what happens if we deal with climate change. (coughs) Now, what we're saying is you should not cherry pick those scenarios. You need to tell your shareholders and investors what your business model will do in relation to each of those. If you're going to use one of them, you use them all. Do not cherry-pick.
0: An investor who has a 401k, maybe they manage some funds, uh, what choices does an individual investor have, Anthony Hobley, if they're concerned about carbon risk? <clears throat> if you buy the S&P 500 index, smart thing to do. A couple of the top companies in there are going to be Chevron, Exxon, etc. It's hard to avoid these fossil fuel stocks. What can, a, what can an investor do?
2: It is very difficult. I mean, there's, 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 there's one example which is you? there are some fossil-free um, indices and, and funds that now exist, so you could invest in those. Or you could write to your money manager, your um, asset manager. I, I was speaking to one of, um, a manager last year of one of the funds within one of the big UK pension funds. And we were talking about this issue. And he said, I manage probably money within my fund for probably thousands of people. And do you know how many letters I get from them a year? And I said, no. He said, I got six letters last year. So he said, you know, if I got twenty or fifty or even hundred letters from people asking me how am I addressing and dealing with climate risk and how are the, you know, how am I <coughs> assessing that within the companies whose shares I'm buying on your behalf, um, that I would take that seriously. He said I'd probably take it seriously if I got five letters. It, it, so I think you can you can engage with those. It's your money, and, and they manage on your behalf. You,
3: you have something important, which is the vote. Yes. So even this coming uh, weeks. There are going to be annual general meetings. This is the general election for the company. And at Shell and at BP, both those companies have got proposals Mm. which shareholders put forward to say, we want risk reporting along the lines that we've just been talking about. We want stress-tested scenarios. We want to see how your business could possibly function within Mm. the targets set by the international community for a two-degree rise. At Major energy companies in the United States um, are going to be proposals allowing shareholders to be uh, in a position to put forward candidates for the board. In the US, that's called proxy access, to allow the shareholders to use the proxy, that ballot that gets circulated to those who are not able to attend the meeting. So... By holding these boards accountable, we see this as a route to better risk management, but also to putting in place directors who are going to have the skill sets um, and ultimately the incentives to start tackling this issue.
0: Kurt Billick, is this going to have any impact on these big companies, or is this going to be a little... Nuisance that they swat away. Uh,
1: I think it's a nuisance that they swat away, quite frankly. I think that you've got to look at... Um, I think Anthony's point about incentives is a terribly important one. You've got to look at the incentives that the managers have, and you've got to take it up to the next level, going back to what you said about the portfolio manager. You have to look mm. at his incentive as well, mm. and that he's going to be judged on... Uh, maybe if he has really good investors, he's going to be judged on annual performance. Uh, but generally, our investors judge us on weekly and monthly performance, um, and so the, the incentives are just not there along the entire chain to be thinking in this fashion. And I think that this gets back to, um, to the other point that, that really in order to get um, to make the system work, I think you need to address it more from the demand side. So the price on carbon uh, is probably, you know, the way that you're really going to change things is by creating a market environment where people can actually react to the incentives that they're seeing. Um, I just want to throw out one other thing. We're talking about um, oil and gas companies, and I think we're actually missing another huge segment of the market that's deeply affected by this, and that's the utility industry. And that you know the utilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want to know who the real carbon villains are, it's the, the coal burners, which is the which is the, the power generation sector is uh, is probably one of the bigger uh, the bigger participants. And ultimately, I think you know the other thing, and this gets back to carbon pricing. We're not talking about demand. We're not talking about that people still want the lifestyle that's afforded to them by low-cost hydrocarbons. So I a lot yeah, of people... can't let
3: this Anne point Simpson about... take a swing. Um, well, it's, uh, maybe it's good manners. I would just think about a company considering that the owners are a nuisance uh, to be swatted away. Um, this would be a bit like a politician saying, well, mm. the people who elect me are a complete pain in the neck because they have opinions... But but American companies
0: are not democracies. Many many shareholders don't vote their proxies. It's a pain.
3: Uh, Well, that's also true in the political process. But do Mm -hmm. we then um, suggest that the electorate is a nuisance? No, quite the reverse. I think what we're seeing is a wider group of investors um, Mm. starting to communicate with each other. I mean, let's just take these energy companies, these very important votes that are coming up. There is an, an, an alignment of thinking between, I've never seen this before, a very broad yeah. array of investors. T. Rowe Price, BlackRock, Norges, uh, ironically a petroleum fund, but the largest pool of money in the world, mm. CalPERS, New York City, Tia Cref. You're seeing very different investors um, agreeing... Um, on this concept of proxy access, of board mm. accountability. And what you're, uh, what, what's coming through are these mm. significant numbers of company, you know, Citibank, Apple, um, a, a wide group of companies beginning to accept that not only is voting a good thing, but the owners need to yeah. have a voice um, in the process of who nominates candidates to be elected to the board. Yeah. I and think that's a profound shift in the mm. governance dynamics in the U.S. And Simpson
0: is a senior portfolio manager at CalPERS. We're talking about carbon investments and climate change at Climate One. Our other guests are Anthony Hobley from the Carbon Tracker Initiative, a think tank in London, and Kurt Billick from Bocage Capital. Uh,
2: Anthony Hobley. Well, I want to come on that. Sorry, I hate to correct you a second time in your, <laughs> your question, but companies are democracies. It's just that the voters do not exercise the right to vote. But I think that is changing both yeah. here and in Europe. I mean, for the first time ever, um, re- board resolutions on climate have been launched against BP and Shell um, in Europe, and BP and Shell were so worried that you know they were going to lose those or a sizable proportion of their shareholders were going to vote for them, they have now recommended their shareholders to vote for those climate change yeah. resolutions. That's, that, that's big. Now, those resolutions, you know, perhaps not specific enough, but it's the first very important step. There's another issue I, and I, I want to respond on here carbon tracker is known as the carbon bubble people we created this idea that you cannot burn it all because if you burn it all we're going to six degrees many times over you simply cannot burn all the fossil fuels in the ground and stay below two degrees or three or four degrees for that matter um, but this is this is a carbon bubble It's not an energy bubble yes you're absolutely right demand for energy is going to go up but fossil um. fuels are increasingly not the only way of delivering that energy. Well, One, efficiency, and we'll be getting much better at efficiency, as, as you've pointed out. But if you just look at the cost of renewables and the ways to deliver renewables, we were asked to do a piece of work um, in response to the notion that was getting put out by the coal industry. The coal industry suddenly, I don't know if you've noticed, they got very concerned about poor people um, and providing energy to poor people in the last um, year or two. Um, and particularly you know, to the energy poor. And they want to, you know, in a charitable way, I'm Still sure, market. in a char- charitable way, I'm sure, bring energy to the world's poor, which is, is quite touching. But we, we did this um, analysis to look at the financials of delivering energy to the world's pov- energy poor via coal or via solar. Mm. And it's clearly cheaper to provide energy and electricity to the world's poor via solar for a whole range of reasons. Um, so I think we're seeing a massive transition. And I think the problem for the incumbents is that when you look back at all of the big technological shifts from steam to automobiles, um, from traditional cameras and film to digital cameras, and you, know, you could go on, the incumbents almost never make that transition, and they go out of business.
0: Anthony Hadley, you mentioned uh, warming of 2 degrees Celsius. That's the level at which the world community said should not go beyond 4, mm-hmm. 6, etc., Tell how the business model of Apple and a lot of corporations would be challenged, you know, how that environment would be for business, and how the business model of the oil companies is at odds with other companies.
2: Well, Exxon, in their response, um, acknowledged climate change as an issue, um, but they said the governments, and, and we, as you know, people, were never going to stop them burning all of the oil gas and coals. They're going to burn it. So effectively what they're saying is we're going to take the world to six degrees, well, and beyond, actually, because there's enough fossil fuel out there not to take us to six degrees once, not twice, but quite a few times over. It's like when they first counted all the nuclear warheads and realized we actually had enough nuclear warheads to fry the planet ten times over. We have enough fossil fuel resources and reserves, you know, not to fry the planet once, but multiple times. So even physically, that's going to be impossible. But it's effectively what Exxon were doing is they were, they were laying down a challenge to, all, you know, to, to retail and to food and to high-tech and, and to information technology and saying, to hell with your business models, um, we're just going to burn and make as much money while we can and we don't care what that does to all of your business models because most of those business models would struggle to survive in a world of, well, three degrees, let alone six degrees.
0: Kurt Billick, the conventional view on Wall Street is that technology will change, that this doomsday scenario won't come to fruition, that it's environmentalists are exaggerating it. What what is the view? Is that correct characterization?
1: Uh, No, I think you're ascribing too much forethought. Uh, to Wall Street, I think that Wall Street—you um, know—I think if you're investing on, as as most investors do uh, in the in, in most of the financial uh, in most of the financial industry that we think of as Wall Street—are uh, incentivized on much shorter time cycles, and so therefore you're going to be much more reactive. And you're going to react to the situation as it evolves. And while it's nice to think in 10 and 20, and maybe there are some, some people and institutions that, that need to think in 10 and 20 year cycles, I would think that that's just not kind of how the financial markets work. And so I don't think that anybody, I, I don't think that anybody actually even has thought to, this, to say, oh, technology
0: will solve this problem. I think they'll say, they're saying, we'll deal with this problem tomorrow. Get rich today, we'll be in a better position to deal with it tomorrow. Paul Gilding is an author who wrote a book called The Great Disruption, talks about a Pearl Harbor moment. Uh, You know, Japan attacks Pearl Harbor. Washington says, Detroit, you're no longer making cars, you're making airplanes, mm. dramatic government intervention. Is that the, what it's going to take because Wall Street won't look further. Well, could right?
3: No, I, could no. I, oh, sorry. sorry.
0: Can I just uh, because I think No,
3: no, you have yeah. several no's, so there you go. We can <laughs> not, make not all that!
2: <laughs> look, uh, what, what, you're, what you are describing is the disorderly, chaotic transition versus the orderly transition. You know... The reason we're doing the sort of financial analysis and mapping this out is we don't want that chaotic, that disorderly, that Pearl Harbor moment. Because that yeah. is when you get disruption. When governments have to step in to that scale, that's when you get financial dislocation. At that stage, if governments step in in that scenario, they're not going to care about the economic fallout and the stranded assets. They're going to care about dealing with the problem. So, but we have still got time with Paris coming up and so on to send a clear signal that allows a transition over the next two to three decades. And even within the carbon budget, you'll still burn a lot of oil and gas and and some coal within two degrees, but you need the industry to decide to recognise and realise it's got to shrink as the alternatives come up and take its place. If you kick the can down the road yet again, you raise the risk and the probability of that panic, that, you know, I was going to swear, but I won't, Um, that moment when you go, oh, awful.
3: when you go, we oh my God! That, you can say A-R-B. that. You can
0: say that on American radio. <laughs> Ann Simpson, um, <laughs> former. I was
3: swearing for Anthony to spare him, <laughs> spare his brushes. I was
0: expecting the Brits to be well behaved yeah. be yes. Yes. Um, Can I say
3: something about this transition? Sure. Um, so here's good old Calpers. We, we're thinking in 70-year cycles because we're a pension fund. Um, there is a plan. Uh, we don't need this you know, bombing of Pearl Harbor. There is a plan which has been um, broadly agreed through the creative chaos of the um, intergovernmental meetings. And there's an important one which was mentioned coming up in Paris uh, in December. So in the run-up to Paris, there is this um, plan for what needs to be done by each government, number one, and what needs to happen by sector. And if you look, um, there's some uh, you know, rather attractive and easy-to-understand charts that the World Development Report has put together, which show in a sort of colourful way what would happen to world temperature if you just have business as usual. Then we go, 4 degrees, 6, 8, 10. Uh, that's not... Um, you, you said a threat to the business model. Well, I don't think of myself and my children as a business model, but it's more or less a threat to um, human, human survival, certainly human thriving... But what this maps out very nicely in the World Development Report, and they did this work a while back in 2010, is how do we get to that 2 degrees uh, temperature and maintain it over this 30-year period? And they chunk it out as follows. They, okay, well, one chunk will be dealt with through energy efficiency, and that's very nice for companies because it's typically a way that you cut costs. Another chunk is going to be tackled through the continuing development of renewables, um, mm. which are getting... Cheaper, more available, and um, that's another bit. Another chunk is carbon capture. Another chunk is carbon sequestration. And nuclear has a little role in their vision of the future. And fossil fuels dwindle out, dribble out uh, their reserves over quite a long period because the, the ecosystem globally has the capacity to absorb an amount of carbon. It's not that suddenly photosynthesis grinds to a halt or oceans can't absorb anything at all. It's just the the quantity and the pacing of that carbon emission that needs to be controlled. So that plan's there. I think what we want to do as a global investor who's part of all those sectors is make sure that the strategies of those companies and the people running those companies actually line up with that plan. Because there might be short-term opportunities for arbitrage and profit-taking and all that great stuff, but over the long term, for everyone, the system won't survive. We we uh-huh. need to be thinking in a you know joined-up thinking between sectors and across time. Um, but it's very doable. This is not I'm not in a doom and gloom mode about this, but mm. it does mean investors paying attention. So everybody who's a saver. Um, through a pension, through a 401k, through uh, a mutual fund. Really hold your manager's feet to the fire because you ultimately are the owners of this system. And if we want it to work for everyone, which we can make it work, we need far more accountability in the financial mm. markets.
0: Ann Simpson is a senior portfolio manager with CalPERS. We're talking about carbon and climate risk at Climate One. We'll be right back after this break. <laughs> And now here's a Climate One minute. Just how comfortable is Wall Street with renewables? Josh Shine, CEO of Global Key Advisors, was our guest in 2014. He said that while he was encouraged by the growth of clean energy companies, he had reservations about
3: the stability of solar stocks versus fossil fuels.
0: I don't necessarily want to put 10 percent of the portfolio into solar. It's it's just it's too risky. I mean, I feel like I, I want to do it, but then I you know, my I feel like I. You might get fired. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm being paid to represent clients on Wall Street, not Washington. And that part of me says that, and part of me wants to do a better job, so I'll try to fit the solar into it. But it's a struggle, and I think, I think we, all, we all struggle with this. And, and on this carbon risk, do you think that if there's these stranded assets and that, boy, there's going to be a big crash coming, do you think you'll see that coming in time to switch your clients out of oil and gas Not stocks? at all. Not at all, but, but I also look at it that the energy is 10% of the portfolio. If it went down 30%, you lose 3%. So these things happen, and I think that's just the prevailing view of Wall Street. That was Josh Shine, CEO of money management firm Global Key Advisors, speaking with Greg Dalton in 2014. This has been a Climate One Minute. Now back to our live program at the Commonwealth Club. We're back at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking with Ann Simpson from Calpers, Anthony Hobley from the Carbon Tracker Initiative, and Kurt Billick, CIO of Bocage Capital. It's time for our lightning round. We're going to ask a series of quick yes or no questions. Uh, Ann Simpson, the lessons of clean tech are similar to the dot com era in terms no, of over. No, no, it's
3: very different.
0: Kurt Billing, coal will still be king of U.S. electricity in five years. Uh, in decline. An aging king. An aging king. Anthony Hobley, fossil fuels have served humanity well, lifted billions of people out of poverty. They are a cornerstone of modern civilization, yes or no?
2: Yes, but the time's up. (laughs) (laughs) Ann Simpson,
0: oil executives who delay action on climate change when they know it creates real human suffering are committing crimes against humanity, as scientist James Hansen has said.
3: No, what what they're doing is something venal and selfish, which humans have had the ability to do for, you know, since the beginning. We're all capable of being venal and selfish. OK, so that's a no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Anthony a Hobble, let's,
0: let's pretend this scenario. This is this is made up um, in a boardroom coup. Climate advocate Bill McKibben was just appointed CEO of a major oil company. He has directed the com- access one, <laughs> so you can run this is, bills this at Exxon. HBO thing. Uh, <laughs> he has directed the company to stop investing in oil and put its money into biofuels and clean energy, investments that will generate lower profits. Shareholders will A herald him as courageous hero and buy more stock, or B call for the company to fire his butt after the first quarter of disappointing earnings. <laughs> Um, a or B. They, that if any CEO who put a lot of money into renewables, that for a little less return, would be heralded or fired.
2: Well, he would be fired, but I don't believe that you would get those lower um, returns because he he would be he would stop investing in high cost projects and probably run off and make a huge amount of profits out of the low cost. Okay. I, I'm going to second
1: that. There's a lot to be said for stopping oil company executives from investing in oil projects. Okay. There's That's a lot of
0: benefit from very, that. Very interesting. Uh, and I think you may have suggested at this earlier, uh, Ann Simpson, new nuclear power is necessary to stabilize the climate and maintain the economy.
3: It's not, it's not a one-shot solution.
0: So, you've yes. Got, so, you've, you've, yes. Got
3: to, you've got to tackle this through different sectors.
0: Including nuclear.
3: Nuclear has, you know... You're not very good at yes and no. (laughs) That's probably why I'm in the world of investment. (laughs) You know, you have to think things through.
2: Mm. I'm happy to answer that question. If it was a choice between runaway climate change or nuclear, I'd choose nuclear as much as I hate nuclear.
0: Uh, Anthony Hobley, if the economy moves away from fossil fuels, demand for them will decline. Prices will also decline. Fossil fuels will become cheaper, and Americans will buy more SUVs.
2: (laughs) Um, It's all about education, isn't it? Um, If you move away, if demand moves away from fossil fuels... Price, um, Price will drop. But so will the cost of alternative energies as people pile into them and you scale them up. Okay. So you'll be, you'll be driving I, a cheap electric SUV. I, I actually so I have been, a Tesla. There's
1: actually a great example of a, of a commodity industry that's been in decline for the last 15 years. Newsprint. Newsprint consumption's down 70% in the last 15 years. I don't think the falling price of newsprint is driving more people back to reading newspapers. Because mm. the uh, digital is so
0: much better. Mm. <laughs> so maybe solar is so much better. Good
1: point.
2: Mean, have, you, yeah. have you seen BMW's new i8? Have you seen Jeremy Clarkson, probably one of the most conservative petrol heads in the UK, who hates electric cars? Tess drove this car um, on one of the recent programmes, and the test was he drove it all the way to Newcastle, one end of the UK to the other, and he had the top of the range BMW petrol BMW waiting for him. And his decision was whether he drove home in the i8 electric BMW or the or the top of the range BMW. He chose, and as much and he was as surprised, he chose the electric i8. You know, and, and his analogy was, well, I think it's a bit like when we switched from the... You know, here's the typewriter and here's the laptop, and we're in one of those, one of those moments. <laughs> Very cool. <laughs> Ann
0: Simpson, you. the Keystone pipeline will advance American energy independence. Yes or
3: no? I'm British. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, we got your, our independence from you. Okay, all right. Um,
3: I, I, cr- I'll, cr- actually,
0: cr- I'll actually cr- give cr- you like- an opinion
1: on Keystone, if, if Ann. will. Sure. Like. I think Keystone... Um, Whenever I hear about Keystone, I'm reminded of a great quote from Alexander Haig, and he was talking about the Secretary of State in the early 1980s, talking about the Falkland Islands War, and he said it was two bald men fighting over a comb. The Keystone Pipeline is so irrelevant to the US's uh, energy infrastructure. It was conceived 10 years ago before the shale boom emerged, and has become largely irrelevant to the transportation of oil, and the, just the, the actual physical oil economy. And it's been seized by people as a political football, and they're, and they're arguing over something that's, that's kind of a non-issue. So
0: Kurt uh, Billick, Europe is all for pricing carbon as long as no Frenchman loses their job. Yes or no? <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> um, Anthony Hobley, divesting from fossil fuel stocks is a feel-good action that has no economic impact. It simply makes the companies cheaper for others to buy.
2: Um, Divestment's important, but it's not the solution. Divestment um, makes this real, puts pressure on companies, but I think you get more if you actually engage with the companies as a shareholder. But engagement without divestment is like having a criminal law, system, criminal law without a justice system to enforce it.
0: Just so at last, I want to end our lightning round by asking each of you, uh, starting with Kurt Billick, uh, climate change is a moral issue. Uh, yes, absolutely. Anne Simpson?
3: Yes, but it's also an economic issue. Mm-hmm.
2: It's, no, it's a financial risk issue. And this debate's happening in London at the moment. The Green MP, Caroline Lucas, has written to the chairman of the trustees of the Parliamentary Pension Fund and asked how are they assessing the impact on returns of climate risk. He wrote back, basically saying, we've talked to our advisors and we don't consider ethical or moral issues. She's gone back and said, no, I'm sorry, I'm asking you about a financial risk that impacts the returns of this pension fund. So yes, it's a moral issue, yes, it's an ethical mm. issue, but it is very much a financial risk issue as well.
0: Let's talk about the upside, clean tech. Uh, Tesla has a market capitalization of $25 billion. Last year, they delivered about 22,000 cars. I don't know, but there's a lot of zeros in there for each car. Uh, Kurt Billick, what do you see as some of the most promising clean tech areas?
1: Well, I think, uh, I think to Anthony's point, solar is, becoming, uh, is, becoming, is getting to a point um, where it is becoming a very uh, viable part of the power mix from a purely economic standpoint. You know, that there's two things people talk about. They talk about socket parity and they talk about grid parity. Socket parity is where the price of solar is equivalent to what you pay for it, and grid parity is where it's equivalent to the price at which a coal-fired plant can deliver it. We've definitely achieved socket parity in a lot of parts of the world uh, and are well on our way to achieving grid parity in, in many parts of the world. Um, so I think that, you know, so I think that that's really one of the exciting Uh, The exciting parts of it. I think you've got to look at battery technology. Um, I think that one of the issues with renewables is that they're unreliable and unstable sources. Battery technology, improving battery technology, Mm -hmm. will allow for um, time shifting of power so that you can generate power at the height of the the sunny day or on a windy day and store it for a, a calm day or for the middle of the night. Um, so I think that those are some of the more exciting
0: dimensions to the clean tech story. Anne Simpson, exciting clean tech opportunities?
3: Yeah, but as back to the you know boring old reality that clean tech one part of this solution: energy efficiency, mm. carbon capture, carbon sequestration. Um, we need to be able to do more than one thing at the same time, and treating the clean tech. Um, agenda as some simple fix is, is not going to get us there. So.
1: I'd add smart grid technology, improving the efficiency yeah, of the electricity, yeah, and, grid and, and non-grid, and, off the grid developments,
3: yeah. which is you know the opportunity for a lot of countries that haven't invested, sunk lots of money into physical infrastructure.
0: Speaking of physical infrastructure, I want to talk a little bit about another risk. Uh, some former secretaries of the Treasury, uh, George Shultz, Hank Paulson, uh, Mayor Bloomberg, came out with a report on, on risky business, and they mm-hmm. said not just fossil fuel stocks, but there's risk to roads and infrastructure, property. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Ann Simpson, tell us about that risk. It may be—I'm not sure if that's for CalPERS or not, but there's risk to other assets— uh, people who have waterfront homes, for example. Yeah,
3: absolutely, or, or no water. I think that the, um, there are different different elements to thinking about risk, and what's tended to happen in the investment world is thinking it's something you can measure. Um, CalPERS has this set of investment beliefs, and one of the most elegant statements is that risk is multifaceted mm. and not captured through the traditional measures, like volatility or tracking error, in other words, Am I doing the same as everyone else or is things going up and down and I can measure that? If we start to think about risk in this multifaceted way and we call out climate change as an example, natural resource scarcity, then we're into a world where we need new tools, new information, new reporting, and ultimately new models. And we've taken um, the first step in that by deciding that we want to map our carbon footprint in the Calpas portfolio. This is no mean task. We signed with other funds up to something called the Montreal Pledge uh, to coincide with the UN Summit uh, on Climate in September last year. And that means looking at each sector and each company, not just fossil fuels. You know, think about your hamburger. Think about the methane that comes Mm. out the rear end of a cow. Don't just be thinking about... Or a heifer, did you say? Do I have to? Oh, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Well, only when you're angry. A lot, a lot of, of the
0: methane that see. comes out of cows, they actually burp. It comes out the other... Yeah, yeah so thinking, sorry yeah. about that. There is the
3: rear end situation. But things to do with agricultural land, and but the issue of water use, and this is very poignant and urgent here in California. We're in the midst of a drought, you have this agricultural abundance in this state, and yet the management of this scarce, precious resource called water is making climate risk something that's on the political agenda as well as the economic agenda and something that everyone who lives here is very aware of. And, and, and I, think there's a
1: lot, I think there's actually a lot of complexity around this. Um, I, like, for instance, I sometimes sit behind a bus, and the bus says, powered by biodiesel. And that sounds really wonderful, but most of the biodiesel in California powering that bus comes from a plant in Singapore that is using palm oil where they've chopped down the rainforest in order to, uh, in order to build the palm plantations that, that ultimately is firing that bus. And so I think that you really do have to think through the entire life mm-hmm. cycle. Yep. You know, there are a lot of things that sound really nice and really comfortable, but actually when you think through the life cycle, that electric car gets its electricity from somewhere. Is it, ul- is it ultimately as carbon neutral as it feels? It, the answer may be yes, Uh, But the answer
0: may be no as well. Hmm. Depends on the state. Uh, We're talking about energy and climate change at climate one. I'm Greg Dalton, and our guests are Kurt Billick from Bocage Capital, a hedge fund, Anthony Hobley, CEO of Carbon Tracker Initiative, a financial think tank, and Ann Simpson, a senior portfolio manager with CalPERS, the California Pension Fund. Let's have our first question. Welcome. Hi, Stephen Schofield from South Pole Carbon. My question is for Ann. Ann, you mentioned that CalPERS had taken the decision to become a signatory to the Montreal Pledge, which is an initiative that's organizing institutional investors who are willing to measure, calculate, and perhaps disclose the carbon intensity mm-hmm. of their assets under management. Could you please elaborate uh, a bit about some of the considerations uh, that went into taking that, in, that decision?
3: Yeah, that came directly out of um, CalPERS developing and adopting a set of 10 investment beliefs. If we go back to the financial crisis, this was really when anybody dealing with and accepting received wisdom, um, really was dealt a severe blow. The blow to CalPERS was $70 billion. That was the reduction in the value of our assets due to the financial crisis. Now, the uh, rethink, I think, in the investment community since then has been profound because we've been thinking about the notion of being owners, not traders. We've been thinking about how can financial markets serve and be connected and integrated with the real economy. We've been thinking about alignment of interest. We've also been thinking about costs, about new ways of approaching risk, and also understanding where value comes from. It's not just that the stock market does something magical. um, It's the fact that companies create value through their financial capital, their human capital, and also the physical capital that they deploy. So if you go to our website, you can read these beliefs. But we call out climate change in two places – One, in the stewardship of physical capital for which we are ultimately responsible as owners, and two, as a risk in the portfolio which has the potential to affect um, all the asset classes and all the sectors. So then the next question is, well, how are we going to manage that risk? So the first thing is going to be to understand our our carbon footprint, Um, also understand, I think, when we get to the next stage, we'll want to start looking at other factors. Um, The question of... Uh, water scarcity, we've, we held an internal seminar in the investment team around water risk, because uh, that has not been modelled across portfolios. And I think um, sensitivity to changes in the physical climate, extreme weather events, sea rise levels, uh, again, this has not been modelled in the traditional way that uh, financial assets have been managed. But it's the next stage, uh, and we've made a start.
0: Next question, welcome. Yes. um, Billions are being invested through exchange-traded funds, ETFs. A couple of years ago, major providers announced they would offer excluding fossil fuel, broadly diversified ETFs. We now have MSCI and others who have developed the indexes, but I can't find any of these ETFs. Why the big lag and what are the challenges there? I've wondered exactly the same thing. Where are the products? I have C- no idea. An- Anthony Hobbly this morning. <laughs> Anthony Hobley, NRDC and BlackRock a nonstop an index, but there's no product behind it yet.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's early days. They're coming. Um, there are some products out there based on earlier carbon tracker reports um, mm. that are sort of fossil-free indices. But I think what you're going to see in the next couple of years, if you're patient is much more sophisticated products. We're working on something called CapEx Tracker, which will track all of the capital flows in all of the world's oil, gas and coal projects. Mm. That would be a a basis for some very interesting sort of products that are more climate-weighted and climate-tilted, and and look at the transition for fossil fuel companies, which I think is critical.
0: There is a firm called Apirio in Sausalito that manages funds for, I think, some foundations that have divested, uh, but it costs quite a a lot to get in there. Let's have our next question. Welcome. Hi, my name is Wayne, and I'm a member of 350.org. Um, mostly for you, Anne, you seem to be willing to try as an owner. You think of yourself as an owner of the companies mm-hmm. that CalPERS invests in. But I wonder if you would be willing to think of divesting from oil and gas companies, and uh, particularly coal companies, because there is so little time left for us to get off of fossil fuels and switch over to, to solar, wind, geothermal, whatever. Uh, James Hansen, Paul Gilding, uh, Tom Steyer yesterday, a couple of days ago, I heard him at Stanford, said, we don't have 25 years. So
2: what would it take for you to
0: divest from coal? And how much uh, does CalPERS invest in coal, oil, and gas? What percentage of your oh. portfolio is in that? Anne Simpson, uh, we, we have
3: a very tiny exposure to coal, uh, and we've been looking at this because there is a, a proposed bill uh, from Senator DeLeon in California. Um, the way that we approach divestment is that we see it as a last resort. CalPERS has divested in certain situations. But we don't think we're anywhere near that. The problem when you divest is you lose your seat at the table. You sell your shares to someone else. We have no confidence that the person on the other side of that trade gives you know, two figs about what happens at the energy companies. The bigger and probably more difficult question is how do we organize the owners, the shareholders of these companies to get the strategies and the allocation of capital and the reporting mm. uh, in line with these needs in the economy and wider mm. society. That's a much tougher job. Um, but I think the very biggest owners like CalPERS um, and Norgers and the others that we work closely with, that's, that's, the, ch- that's the challenge. Mm. You, know, to you lose <laughs> move your teeth at the, the table. The, Kurt yeah. Billick on divestment.
1: Yeah, I actually think that uh, talking about divesting from coal is kind of a cheap high. Um, and that um, the coal sector is trivial in its size. Yeah, it's and tiny. largely bankrupt. In, nor- in North America, the, the coal industry is it's largely ship. bankrupt. And if you aggregated all of the pure coal mining companies yeah. uh, listed around the world, it would, it would not amount to a mid-size yeah, oil we have company. More renewables uh, than coal, it's think, the oil yeah. industry is where you, I think you really have to go, or you have to go after, as I mentioned earlier, the utilities that burn coal. Right. And that's actually quite a meaningful sector, but that's not what people are talking about. They're basically talking about divesting from, uh, from an industry that, that isn't really that important.
3: And I agree with you, the, and the critical issue there um, is emissions regulation. So investors, we've written, and others, but not enough, have written to back the EPA on their emissions uh, regulation of the existing stock of utilities, but also bold new important plans um, to not just deal with new plant but existing plant. Mm. Th- th- we must understand that this is a partnership between uh, civil society, of course, but between the private and the public sector. We need both hands on this.
0: Let's go to our next question in Climate One. Welcome. Thank you. Simon Moy with
1: Natural Resources Defense Council. Thank you so much for this very intriguing discussion. Uh, You know, it it seems like there's this divestment toolkit, there's the policy toolkit to really uh, drive down investments in fossil fuels. I'm wondering about the connection between the two, because here in California, our toolkit has essentially been government policies, technology-forcing policies, whether it's requiring automakers to double, Mm -hmm. have their GHG emissions, whether it's oil companies to invest in cleaner fuels, Where does the divestment movement intersect with government requirements and policies?
0: We have uh, two minutes left. Anything quickly on that?
1: Well, I think think that that you've really actually touched on it because I think ultimately these actually are political questions and moral questions and policy questions. And the problem with divestment, as has been observed, is is that it actually takes you out of the conversation just Mm -hmm. walking away. And... And I think in order to get a widespread enough divestment movement, you actually have to change the political and the policy conversation.
2: Well, could I I come in on that? Because I I slightly disagree. Policy and the politics is is incredibly important. We have a team of world-class, you know, investment-grade analysts working on this. And when we've done our demand scenarios for oil and coal, and we're working on gas at the moment, we found it isn't just about policy. Policy is important, but it's about the new emerging technologies. Hmm. This is yet another big technological transition that's going to catch these guys completely unaware, um, I suspect. Um, it's about the rising costs of oil and gas and coal, which is, is going up, whereas you know the clean ed tech is going down. Um, and it's about efficiency and changing practices. So there's a whole bunch of you know, things that are coming down the line to impact their business models. So it's not just And that's just why it's about, about who's on the board. Yeah. Who's on
3: the board that can actually capture that whole agenda
2: yeah, this is a financial issue this is no longer just a moral and ethical issue and it never was it's a financial risk issue pure and simple welcome to
0: climate one uh, denik murphy i've got a question um it, something's fishy here okay it it seems to me that i mean you you said we don't have much time uh, you said it's about policy and politics uh, you've got people in Congress who were, who were bringing snowballs into, into the chamber. <laughs> you've got idiots who were saying, I'm a scientist, but, you know, uh, this isn't really going to happen. It's not real. And I don't believe the 98% or the 99% of scientists saying this. It seems to me that there's some money behind that somehow. And, and I'm wondering if you think that corporate CEOs of big, the big fossil fuel companies are paying for some of this or others. Ann Simpson, uh, Bloomberg Business Week did a story in which they called Shell Oil Company Jekyll and Hyde because they say things in public and they play, they act differently in mm. private to stop the progress that they talk about in public, which is related to what I think he's talking about, mm-hmm. is money and politics.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's a, a classic situation of a transition, isn't it? Yeah, yes, we are, no, we aren't. Yes, we are, no, we aren't. Um, on the you one call hand, crazy mixed up Shell, kids. Well, it's like a teenager, <laughs> hey. You're just sort of coming to grips with it all. I think it is coming to grips with it all. It's a new environment and a lot of challenges. But um, you know, we want to hold Shell's board to what they've done, which is support this shareholder proposal that will require a step in the direction towards giving us the information that we need. The stress testing mm-hmm. on the risk assumptions. Right now, we have Sweet Fanny Adams. And Mm. if we start getting the stress testing on these risk assumptions, understand where our money's being put to work or not, Mm. or it's being squandered, that is going to bring together these um, uh, financial issues with the policy agenda. Right now, the reporting is just not there.
2: This is all about transparency, and this is one of the issues of transparency. What you need to do is require these guys to disclose Mm. how they're lobbying and what they're lobbying. We've seen it before. I mean... You know, the rail industry lobbied to prevent the car. You know, in, in, in the UK and many US states, you had to employ someone. I think in, in the UK, this was on the statute books for 12 years. If you owned an automobile, you had to, someone walk in front of you with a red flag mm. um, shouting, danger, danger. <laughs> um, and the, the railroad lobby managed to get one US state to pass a law that if you were driving your car down the road and you had livestock, you had to stop, turn it off, dismantle your car hide the components behind local shrubbery, (laughs) wait till the livestock pass, (laughs) and then you could reassemble your car and continue on the journey. I mean, unsurprisingly, the governor of that state refused to sign that into law. So we've been here before, and we'll be here again, and it's it's what, you know, industries who see the writing on the wall is what they do. It's their last desperate cling-to position but it won't help them.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, I think people will defend their, their financial interests, and that's what the energy industry perceives it doing. You know, there's been an argument made here tonight that maybe what they think is their financial interest isn't, mm. and I certainly agree that these, these are not management teams that have shown themselves to be that good at allocating capital mm. over, over the last 30 or 40 years. Um, but uh, I think to think there's something fishy is maybe overstating the case. I think people pursue their own narrow self-interest. Uh, We're we out of time. Our thanks
0: on. to Kurt Billick, CIO of Bocage Capital, Anthony Hobley from the Carbon Tracker Initiative, and Ann Simpson from CalPERS. I'm Greg Dalton. You can listen to this and other uh, Climate One podcast on the Climate One website, climateone.org, and you can also follow us on Twitter. Thanks to our audience here in San Francisco online. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. Jane Ann Chen is the producer, and Alyssa Kerr is our assistant producer. The audio engineer is John Rieger, with help from Will Llewellyn. The Commonwealth Club's CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Join us next week for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.